0: Chapter 19, Icarus. To whom it may concern. I had just wanted to destroy them. I wanted to destroy the Powerpuff Girls and my mistakes, the rowdy rough boys. I had just wanted to get rid of them and restore my honor and status. I wanted my career back. I wanted my dignity back. I wanted to bestow on them the fate that they deserve. I wanted them out of my life forever. And though it is not by my hand, that is what is happening now finally so why is this happening to me as well i never foresaw this this wasn't part of the plan we devised our army of creatures weren't supposed to be flawed they weren't supposed to die on their own professor utonium wasn't supposed to analyze them but i suppose if he hadn't i wouldn't have had any idea of what was happening to me right now i would likely just think that i was sick had come down with some human virus, although I rarely had before. It's not like I ever thought that the chemical X inside of me would someday fade away. It started with those headaches. Those terrible, awful migraines. Then it escalated to fainting, and the nosebleeds where nothing came out but chemical X. Then the projectile chemical X vomiting. I can feel it happening. Slowly, but it's happening. The size of my brain grows smaller each day, my once snug-fitting helmet is beginning to hang. Loosely on my head. I'm starting to forget knowledge that was once bread and butter to me. Every once in a while, maybe once or twice a week, I forget how to walk on two legs. I go back to my quadrupedal gait without even realizing it, reaching forward on the knuckles of my hands with all of my weight and then swinging my back feet forward to meet them. Once I become aware that I'm doing it, I snap myself out of it. I've been trying to force myself to keep from doing it, and most days I'm successful. But I keep slipping. Now I'm beginning to forget how to use forks and knives when I eat. I've been picking all of my food up with my hands, and I'll be halfway through my meal before I realize what I'm doing. Then I pick up the utensils, and I can't remember how to hold them properly. It's like I've never used them before. My language is slipping, as well. I've been reading books every single day to remind myself of the language I've spoken for so long. But I can feel it slowly leaking out of my head like water. Turns of phrase, metaphors, similes, adjective phrases, prepositions, proper nouns, simple nouns, different verb forms, all slipping away from me bit by bit. I've even found writing this letter to be difficult. The feeling is terrifying and unwelcome. And yet, I can't seem to stop it. I don't know how much time I have left. If anybody reads this, if anyone else finds this, one day I will not be able to talk anymore. I won't be able to work on my technology or gadgets or invent something to help myself. I won't be able to help myself at all. As much as I hate to confront this possibility, I know it's coming. I can feel it. And when it happens, I will need your help. Whoever you are, find Professor Utonium. Tell him to change me back. He is one of the people that I hate most in this entire world, but in a sense, he created me, he turned me into the being that I am today. And he would be the only one that could help me. If I cannot get to him myself first, take me to him. I will likely forget all my intelligent thoughts and memories once the detransformation is complete, so you must heed this possible last letter whoever you may be, you might be my only hope. And I can only hope this shout into the void wasn't for naught. If, by any small chance, I cannot be changed back into what I am now after all, and I am lost forever, then I offer only this, take my place. Take my weapons, my doomsday charts and journals, my files, and my lair. Take the memory of me, and make me greater than I could have ever hoped to be. Make sure the world never forgets my name for all the rest of history. Signed. Mojo Jojo. For at least the tenth time, I stared at that last sentence written in the letter, feeling the most overwhelming mixture of emotions I had ever felt in my ancient life. Eventually, I folded the letter up, between my claws again, slowly lining up the edges perfectly. Carefully, I put it in the inside pocket of my luxury silk pink. Robe. And with barely contained rage, I turned to face the chimp on the floor of the room. It paced around, its knuckles grazing the floor, its back feet matching the movement. I stared down at it, my lip curled. It stared back at me with blank black eyes, looking mildly interested, but its glance held no recognition and not one ounce of the intelligent, sometimes maniacal, musings that they used to. No irritation, no raving lunacy. No thirst for power. Just simple, dumb curiosity. Just an animal. Mojo didn't exist anymore. Only Jojo was left. The memory of our tense group discussion passed, and the days continued to tick by. They became longer, dragging, blending together in Professor's hospital ward until they became one long, indeterminable stretch of time. Professor had asked my sisters and I to spend our nights and most of our days permanently in the basement hospital ward. Our health had continued to decline and we began having more insistent symptoms than the professor was comfortable with. He wanted to keep his attention on us as often as possible. It won't be so bad, professor had tried to reassure us the day we had moved our pillows, blankets, and personal belongings that we could carry down into the basement. The focus on us and the media had calmed, he'd said to us, so our ban on the internet and TV had thankfully been lifted. It was a slight relief, especially considering we would have nothing else to do in the basement all day. As I grabbed my favorite books, my favorite movies, and my favorite furry pink pillow, I tried hard not to think of how the night before might have been the last time I would sleep in my own bedroom. Our days and nights in the hospital began. During these days, I began to lose consciousness easily. I lost it without even realizing it, until I found myself startling awake again. My head aches constantly, and at every single moment of my waking hours, nausea curls at the back of my throat, even when I would lie as still as I could. And during my unconscious hours, I dreamed. I dreamed of days when my sisters and I were at Pokey Oaks Kindergarten, when we spent our days coloring, having snacks, taking naps, and having recess. Days when everything was fresh and young and wondrous to me, and every morning when I woke up I was filled with possibilities. I dreamed of the days when we'd get a call on the hotline, and we'd leave and fight crime. Those days were so simple. Beat up some robbers, come back to kindergarten. Take down Mojo, return for dinner with Professor. I dreamed of our days back in middle school and high school. I thought of the challenges puberty had thrown at me, when things suddenly seemed so complicated, when some things seemed like the end of the world, but were actually still much easier than they seemed. I dreamt of the days in high school when I would fret about who I was, what I wanted, what I liked, who I liked. Times when I would turn to my own self-personified conscience in earnest, as if it were a real person living in my head, and actually talk to it, look to it, for advice. Days where I still had the freedom to be naive. Our problems weren't so dire. Looking back on them, they were simple. I will always treasure those days. I would treasure them for as long as I still could. Until my final days ran dry. However long that would be now. Back then, we never had to worry about not being able to live freely. We didn't once think of what we really were, what that would ultimately mean for us one day, and how we were going to die. We thought we were immortal. Everything felt possible. Now nothing was possible anymore. Days continued to pass. One day, the day that I knew for sure that things would never be the same, I stopped having any dreams at all. Sleep had become just a black, formless void that I disappeared to for hours at a time. I couldn't even take refuge in my own mind anymore. Even my mind had become a black hole, joining with the larger wormhole that my entire life had become. Soon it would finish consuming all the existence that I had left ripping it apart molecule, by molecule, until I never saw the light again. How are you feeling? The question had begun to make me feel sick, just hearing it. I hated how those words made me feel, when they were strung together. Pathetic, powerless. But when they were said in his voice, paired with the open sincerity on his face and worry in his ruby eyes, it stung just a bit less than usual. Oh, you know, I tried to say lightly, just the usual. I forced my lips into something that hopefully resembled a smile. Brick lowered himself onto his hospital bed, which was right next to mine. It's okay. No one else is in here. You don't have to do that. As he paused, I took a quick look around the ward. All the other beds were, indeed, empty. I guess I had been so out of it that I hadn't noticed the others leave to other parts of the house, which was a true rarity these days. Brick continued, I had a feeling you didn't feel much better, but I just thought I'd ask. I looked at him, half shrugging, letting the stiff smile fade off my face with some relief. Actually, my headache is pretty mild today. So I'm not too bad, really. He gazed at me for a few moments, probably trying to determine if I was lying to make him feel better or not. Then, maybe deciding that I was telling him the truth, a small, tight grin appeared on his face. That's good to hear, then. From there, we began to talk, the way we only could when we weren't around the others. Frank, but gentle. Two leaders taking the heavy loads off our shoulders and relying on each other. Do you sometimes think about, what they would do without you? I asked him suddenly, at some point. Your brothers, I mean. If you were to, leave first. Of course I do, Brick replied, frowning the slightest bit in thought. I know I seem hard on them sometimes, but, I worry about them. He shook his head. I know we're all the same age, but sometimes I feel older. You know? And like an older brother, I just, want them to look to me during hard times. I want to protect them. And I don't want them to feel like they have no one to rely on. Especially now. His words rang so relatable to me that it was almost frightening. I know exactly how you feel. My gaze dropped down to my lap. I would do anything to protect Buttercup and Bubbles. If there were some way, I would want to, go last. So I could still take care of both of them. I paused, then I looked back up. At him, meeting his eyes. And you. I would do anything to protect him. Anything and knowing that I was too feeble and powerless to protect him now filled me with guilt. Brick gazed back at me, for a beat or two, taking in what I said. Then he smirked. Nope, sorry. That position is reserved for me. But nice try. Unable to help it, I gave him a wry look. Half-jokingly, I said, can't we flip a coin for it? I call heads. If there was one thing this horrible— never-ending nightmare, had given me, if anything at all, it was a newfound dark sense of humor. I supposed the motivation behind it was, laugh to hide the fear. He shook his head slowly, holding my eyes with his as his smirk, faded the slightest bit. Non-negotiable. All right. Joke didn't work. I tried a new approach. Then I demand it be me. Demand denied, Brick said straightforwardly, shaking his head again. I blinked at him, and he only raised his eyebrows at me. I allowed myself a cynical chuckle. It's a little morbid of us to be arguing about this, isn't it? I pointed out. Brick coincided, a shrewd light in his eyes, yes, well, our lives are a little morbid now, aren't they? Fair point, I admitted. Indeed, the six of us had become a real-life, ex-superpowered version of the Adams family. I waited a moment, then I eyed him. Still, no room for reconsiderations? His arms folded. Vetoed. Something inside me flared under his even gaze and calm certainty, even with the gravity beneath what he was insisting on. I released a long sigh and mirrored him as I folded my arms, matching his smirk with my own. Stubborn as always. And I intend to remain that way, he said with a proud inclination of his head. For once, I yielded my defeat. Deciding to change the subject, knowing I wouldn't win this one, at least not right now, I said abruptly, remember last Thanksgiving? Of course, Brick replied, with a real grin, this time. It was the best. It was, wasn't it? I said. The memories flooded back to me. Then, inevitably, came the memory of that day that I had been trying most to avoid. My mood dropped in an instant. Remember our game of life race? I asked him, avoiding his gaze. He sensed my change of mood immediately. Yes, he answered, wary. Why? I came out with it directly. You know, at that point, I already knew about the, sterile thing. Professor had told me just a couple of weeks, before. And when I got a fake pregnancy, during the game? I trailed off, not knowing exactly how to finish that sentence. What was I going to say? that it messed with my head? Because it had. But I had the feeling that Brick had caught on to that already. Jesus, Brick muttered, confirming my thoughts. I'm sorry, Bloss. That must have felt awful. And we were all laughing and joking, and. He trailed off, too. He sighed. Why didn't you tell me, he asked. I shook my head. I don't really know why I didn't, I told him. I guess I didn't know if it would matter to you that much. We never even talked about that sort of thing yet. Not in detail, anyway. Of course it would have mattered to me, Bloss. Brick's voice softened. Didn't you know that I think about our future together? What our life would have been like. A house. A dog. Some kids with eyes just like yours, and hopefully your charm. And both of our wit. I thought I was prepared for it, but his words of our future in the past tense stung me so fiercely that it sucked the air out of me. It felt like someone had reached into my torso and wrung my heart between their hands. It hit me all at once, overwhelming and crushing, and my hands came up, covering my face. My voice came out muffled when I whispered, Oh God. Seeing my anguish, Brick immediately stopped. Then I heard him stand up, come over to my bed, and carefully sit on the end of it. As I tried hard to calm myself, the both of us stayed quiet for a minute or so. Brick eventually broke the silence, saying softly as his hand ran, soothingly over my socked foot, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to upset you. No, I said immediately, my voice breaking. No, don't apologize. I just... hearing that jest. I couldn't finish my sentence without feeling like I was about to cry. Hearing the reality of our future together being taken away, was too much for me. Shoving it away, was the only way, I'd been able to continue on, like this, seeing him struggle daily, and him seeing me struggle. I hadn't wanted to think about our non-future, because I couldn't. Because it was impossible. Because thinking about it would make me disintegrate from the inside out. It was too much for me to bear. Wordlessly, Brick scooted closer to me on my flat, uncomfortable bed that I had begun to hate. I made enough room for him to lie down next to me, and just as I was about to settle back onto the bed again, he gently wound his arms around me, bringing me against his chest. On my side, I lay there against him, curling my fingers against his t-shirt and settling with my ear against his chest. His slow, human-like heartbeat coursed through my head. The sound of it calmed me, almost immediately, and my eyes slid shut as his hand smoothed my hair back away from my face. Every aspect of my life had changed in a second. My entire world was different. But there was still him. Hey, Bloss? His voice came suddenly, reverberating through his chest pleasantly. Hmm. I answered, halfway to sleep. I need to tell you something. Something really important his voice sounded serious. I shifted slightly, forcing my brain to switch back to alertness and snap out of its drowsy trance. Go ahead, I told him. I'm listening. Brick drew in a long breath. I heard the whoosh of it in his expanding chest. Then he sighed, and I moved with his ribs as they contracted. Lately, I've been thinking, wondering, really. Wondering about what? I prodded. He paused, then started, my life now, compared to a few years ago, is so different. And sometimes I wonder, what this whole thing would have been like without you. If me and my brothers were on our own through this whole chemical X burning out thing, and not with you guys. Especially Professor. My pulse stuttered in shock at his words. Indeed, what would this have been for them without Professor's treatments and care? What would this have been like for us, without them? What a world of difference it would have made. How much. More horrible it would have been. I swallowed hard. Whoa, I managed to say finally. I asked, what made you think of that? Brick shrugged slightly, but only with one shoulder, so he wouldn't jostle me. I've just been thinking about a lot of stuff lately. But, to be honest. He trailed off, hesitating. I frowned up at him. Go on, you can tell me. You can tell me anything. He hesitated for another moment, then finally, he came out with it. Even before this started happening, when we'd just gotten together, I thought about things like this, too. There are times, when I lose whole nights of sleep, when I let myself think of my past. The things I've done. His arms around me, tightened. It feels like a whole lifetime away, that those things happened, but that's the thing, it wasn't that long ago. It was only a few years ago. And I can't sit here and pretend like I never did those terrible things, just because they happened in the past. I can't pretend like I'm a whole new person. I'm not, Blossom. I'm still me. Very quietly, I said, I know. Brick went on. By accident, I still think of things that, frankly, they terrify me. Every single day. It takes effort for me to fight against every horrible instinct that was put into me by my creator. For me, it takes effort to choose to be good. It's a daily struggle, for me. I don't think I can accurately explain to you in words what it feels like to battle against myself every single day. At his words, my heart panged, and I nestled my face into his t-shirt, unable to say anything. I'd had a general idea of how hard this change had been for him, but hearing him say it put everything into perspective for me, there was no way I could really know how hard it was. And I felt guilty that I couldn't understand. He continued, running a hand over the top of my head idly. Deep down, I'm not good. I try to be, but at my very core, I'm not. And in a different world where things make sense, someone like me could have never been with someone like you. I jerked back, tilting my head up, to scowl at him head on. Brick. My tone was full of disapproval. He knew I hated it when he said things like that. I mean it, he said, dead serious, with no remorse at all. Brick, don't you dare, I told him, not letting up with my glare. Stop it. You know that upsets me. Patient as always, he only nodded. I know it does. But just hear me out, okay? He waited until I settled back down against his chest again smoothing my hair back once more with his hand, and then, he continued. You're so much better than me, Blossom. And the thing is, you were born that way. I had to undo everything I had been raised with, undo everything I was, and learn how to become a good person. But you just are. You made me a better person, just by being who you are. So, thank you. Startled by the new direction this had taken, my upset turning immediately into fuzzy warmth, My head throbbed just a little bit more than usual as my cheeks inexplicably flushed. It's not just because of me, I insisted, trying to hide my red cheeks as I ducked my head away from his view. You're the one that ultimately chose this new way of life. I'm not responsible for that. At my plain embarrassment, Brick chuckled. My head and shoulders bounced along with the movement of his chest. Of course you are, he said. He reached with a gentle hand for my chin, lifting my face, so he could look at me. His affectionate stare, drowned me. Do you think I would've given a shit about being good to begin with if it hadn't been for you? His thumb ran against my hot cheek. Besides my brothers, you're all I have in this life. He paused, sitting up slowly. I followed, also sitting up. His face came closer to mine, and his voice softened. I was made for you. If you were never made, I never would have been made, either. I exist, because you exist. You've always been my life, Bloss. And you always will be. Wherever we go after this. Brick closed the distance between us, brushing the softest whisper of a kiss onto the bridge of my nose. My heart leapt into my throat. Then he pressed a kiss to my left cheek, then one on my right cheek, then lingered with his lips, just a breath away from mine. Greedily, I closed the space between us, kissing him wholly and languorously in a way I had not done in what felt like centuries. No matter how many times we kissed, no matter how long, it would always give me the sweetest, purest ache I could never possibly get tired of. I tugged him closer to me, enclosing his wide shoulders in my arms and pulling him against me. After a minute or so, Brick pulled away, the both of us breathing heavily. He leaned his forehead against mine, hands cupping my face between them. Chaos spun inside of me. I always wanted him to hold me. Endlessly. Forever. Brick whispered to me, no matter what happens to us after this. He trailed off, then started again, if another me was reborn into someone else, and you became someone else too, I would still belong to you. I would wait a thousand more lives, for another you. I will always find you, and come back to you. My heart was swelling up and cracking apart at the same time. His words healed me and ruined me. And all I wanted at that moment was brick. Suddenly, I broke away from his grasp. Before I scrambled off of the bed, I glanced at him quickly enough to see the flash of hurt pass over his face. Just a second, I murmured to him as I crossed the room to the door of the hospital ward, rushing as quickly as I could manage. I peeked through the window on the door, peering into the hallway. It was empty. As quietly as I could, I lifted my hand to the lock on the doorknob. I turned it, hearing the click of the lock sliding into place. Slowly, I turned in place, looking over my shoulder. Brick had watched me lock the door. I watched as a number of expressions crossed his face. After one last glance back at the small window, and finding it still dark and empty, I began to walk back toward my bed. Brick watched me approach, unreadable. As soon as I reached my bed quarters, I grasped my curtain with one hand, dragging it across the tiny space both my bed and his bed occupied, effectively sealing us inside the floor to ceiling curtain space. As I did, I continued to take glances back at Brick. It had finally seemed to dawn on him what was happening. Now that I knew for sure that we had our privacy, in full view of him, holding his gaze calmly, I tugged down the zipper of my dusty rose hoodie pushing it off my shoulders, and letting it drop to the ground. Brick watched it drop, and then, he locked eyes with me again. He had grown wide. Blossom! he said. I raised my eyebrows at him, taking hold of the bottom of my blush-colored camisole. Yes? I responded innocently, then proceeded to tug my cami up and over my head, my hair spilling down over my shoulders, back and over the cups of my bra though it objectively didn't matter much at that moment, I was glad I had worn one of my prettier ones that day, hot pink with black lace. Hey, come on. Cut that out, he said, voice faltering. Brick's wide eyes shot down to my chest for a few seconds, as if unable to help himself, then back up to my face again. I kept my eyebrows raised, as if I had no idea what he was talking about. Cut what out? I asked. I tubbed on the waistband of my plaid pajama bottoms, pushed them down, and they fell to the ground. Brick was turning red, from his ears, to his neck, and all the way down past his collarbones. Blossom, he said again. Even his voice was feverish. I finally allowed myself a small smile. Brick? I took a step closer, to my bed. Blossom, stop it. We, we can't. He stopped, gulping. My smile grew. I took another step towards my bed. He scooted away on it, flustered, starting again. Don't get me wrong, I definitely want to. But we don't know how it could affect you. You're sick. So are you, I said to him, twirling a tendril of hair around my finger as I took yet another step closer to the bed. Or did you forget? I sat on the foot of the bed, then climbed up onto it. Biting down hard on his lip, his eyes shot down to my body, as if, once again, he couldn't resist looking. His expression was almost tortured. I don't want you to feel badly, he managed weakly. The truth was, I felt decent at that moment. My head only had the dullest throb, my nausea wasn't present. And that was partly why this couldn't wait a second longer. I started a slow crawl on my hands and knees over to him. Then come make me feel good. I stopped in front of him and grasped the bottom edge of his burgundy t-shirt with both hands, pulling it over his head as he lifted his arms, letting me undress him. I threw the piece of clothing over onto his bed. Brick's resolve was visibly crumbling, but he had one more protest in him. We shouldn't. He trailed off, not finishing. One of his hands reached underneath my arm. Fingers splayed, in an almost savoring manner, his hand smoothed over my shoulder down my shoulder blade, over the back of my bra, all the way. Down my bare lower back, stopping at the swell of my hip. He swallowed hard, his eyes hooded with lust. I leaned into him until my face was an inch away from his. I whispered, I know you've wanted this, for a long time. I have too. I locked eyes with him. I thought it was better to wait. And it was, at the time. But, I waited too long. And now we have no more time. My eyes began to sting, and I paused. Just like that, Brick's arms wrapped around me. I said, I wish I hadn't waited. I wish I could've had endless moments like this, with you. Don't you? My voice broke on my question. I felt a tear escape from the corner of my eye. Of course I wish that, Brick assured me, tone raspy, and hushed. Of course I do. I shifted, so that I was straddling his lap, and Brick pulled me closer. I brought my hands to his hair, weaving my fingers through the silken red, much like mine, though his was a deep pumpkin tone, compared to my coppery strands. It had gotten longer, though. Its length brushed his collarbones now. I leaned down until my lips could press into his collarbones, then they pressed up his Adam's apple and the side of his neck. Brick took an unsteady intake of breath, pulse racing and all the muscles in his neck moved against my lips as he swallowed, his fingers grip, tightening on my waist. He groaned low in his throat, and the bass rumbled against my mouth. Slowly, I brought my face back up and my lips brushed his, tears rolling down my cheeks and dripping away. So I want you now, I whispered, before I can't have you anymore. Brick pulled me flush against him, his grasp tight and voracious, and I pulled his lips to mine. And then my mind was ablaze, and time was gone, and there was only Brick. Brick's hands desperately clutching at me. Brick's heavy breath against my ear as he uttered my name. The magnificent heat that diffused from his skin. Curing me, and reviving me, obliterating me, and devastating me. Sweat that mixed with tears. Harmonious pain that I wanted for eternity. Time went on, continuing to blend and crawl by. I continued to try to cherish this time, to cherish every moment I spent with those I loved. Around the same time, my sisters and I noticed that our hair was thinning. It wasn't so bad at first, our hair just started shedding a little more, strand by strand, than normal. We thought maybe it wasn't anything to get worried about. Within days, it was coming out of our scalps in clumps. Professor told us that there wasn't anything that he could do to restore it for us, or to slow the loss, and so we just had to deal with it and try not to get stressed, as that seemed to make it worse. Buttercup, however, had other plans. One day she stood next to my bed, holding the electric razor out in front of her. It has to be one of you, she explained to me. I can't reach the back and top of my head. Someone else has to do it, and Butch refused. I stared at the razor, which she was still holding out to me my stomach turned in discomfort. Buttercup, are you sure you want? Yes, she interrupted curtly. Then after a moment or two, she said softer, I don't want to watch more clumps of hair swirl down the shower drain anymore. I don't want to deal with taking all of it out of the brush and seeing myself in the mirror, looking like a stray cat. I just want to get it all over with at once. Like. Ripping a band-aid off. She held the razor out further, a more vulnerable light in her eyes now. Please, Pinky. I need you. Just do me a solid, and, do this for me. It was her way of winning at least one small battle, I thought. Buttercup always did fight against the unfightable. If the entire world ever came up against her, 7.5 billion against one, she would come at them fists swinging until her feet couldn't carry her and her lungs breathed their last. Her words, along with how she looked, had swayed me. I took the razor from her hand, holding it in both of mine. Okay, I said. As I got up from my bed, I took a quick glance back at Brick, who only looked at me grimly. Before we left the hospital ward, the sweet voice of our sister, piped up. Wait. We paused and turned to see Bubbles scrambling off of her bed. I'm coming, too, she said. Her short hair was in two tiny pigtails on either side of her ears, and as she walked towards us, I noticed they were thinner than her ponytails used to be. She came straight over to Buttercup, and without another word, grabbed her hand. She held it as all three of us left the ward and walked down the hallway to the basement's bathroom. When we arrived and shut the door, Buttercup sat on the closed toilet seat, and immediately shut her eyes. Just do it now, before I change my mind, she said to me. Bubbles took her hand again, and Buttercup clutched her hand in a vice grip in return. I switched the razor on, and the noise of it resounded in the small room, highlighting our stark silence. Biting my lip, I gently started with the nape of Buttercup's neck. The raven strands floated to the ground as I worked. Buttercup was stiff, staying utterly still. I wondered if she was holding her breath. Bubbles whispered words of comfort to her. Soon I had made it to the backs of her ears, and then, to the crown of her head. By then, Buttercup had stoically begun to cry. She roughly swiped at her eyes and nose with the back of her free hand, as if irritated and humiliated at her own tears. Her other hand still squeezed Bubble's hand. My heart constricted at the sound of her upset, but knowing that it was too late to stop now, I continued working without a word, trying to keep my hand steady. When I only had her overgrown bangs left, I said to her softly, almost done. I held them as I shaved, so that they wouldn't fall onto her teary cheeks. And then all of it was gone. I brushed my hand across her scalp, getting rid of extra clippings. Do you want to look? I asked her by way of telling her that I was done. I added gently, you don't have to. Buttercup sniffed deeply. No, she said. I want to. Letting go of Bubble's hand, she shakily stood. She walked over to stand in front of the mirror, face stony. She stared at her bald reflection. I walked over to her silently, and stood behind her in the mirror. As soon as my reflection showed behind hers, her eyes went to mine. Every feeling she had in that moment swum in them—fear, anger, unbearable sadness. My arms opened to her. Automatically, she spun to face me. Throwing her arms around my neck and burying her face into my sweatshirt as she sobbed. I hugged her tightly around the waist. Bubbles came up behind Buttercup, and she wrapped her arms around both of our shoulders, pressing a kiss onto the top of Buttercup's scalp. Buttercup whimpered into my sweatshirt, loud enough for both of us to hear, I love you guys. Bubbles and I didn't respond, we didn't have to. We only held her tighter. We all held each other for a long time and as we did, I looked at the reflection of us in. The mirror. The very image of love and protection. The very thing that we were created to be. Supporting and lifting each other up as we always did, and having our biggest strength and balance in threes. Three pairs of arms that hugged, three pairs of crying eyes, three hearts that were still, for the moment, beating. Three little girls. The weirdest regrets occurred to me at times in that hospital bed. Sometimes I wondered what the weather would be like in the summertime this year. Would it rain a lot? Would it be hotter than normal? I thought about Pop's ice cream and gelato downtown. I wondered how many customers they would get this summer, wondered how the petulant, them-popping counter-girl would be able to handle the demands of all those sweaty, demanding customers. I wondered what those other flavors tasted like. All those other flavors that I'd never gotten to try. I thought I would have time. Was it so strange that I regretted not trying every single flavor of that delicious gelato when I'd had the chance? There were so many other things that I would be missing out on other than gelato. Then why couldn't I stop thinking of that moment I had my gloves pressed up against that display glass, eagerly looking at every single one. It was, weirdly, the same feeling I had gotten the moment the professor had told me that my sisters and I were sterile. It was the feeling of missing out, that lack of possibility. Zero possibility of ever having a child, zero possibility of ever getting married, zero possibility of ever graduating college. Zero possibility of ever having any more of that delicious gelato. The possibilities were being taken from me, from all of us, stolen forcibly and perhaps that was the most deplorable outcome of all of this. And the thought of it filled me with such unspeakable misery that the darkness of my own mind consumed me. So when these thoughts came to me, I would turn to brick. And we would quiz each other about everything. Science. Math. Historical facts. Conspiracy theories. Anything. Like, which army infamously attacked itself and lost 10,000 of its own men? The Austrian army, in 1788. Or about 20% of the atmosphere's oxygen is produced by. The Amazon rainforest. And even, if Elvis is alive, where do you think he's hiding? Oh, Hawaii for sure. The man loved that place. If he's alive, he's probably on some private beach down there, chilling, playing in yuke, and eating a peanut butter, banana, and bacon sandwich. This was the only thing that would distract me, these conversations. They would last for hours, until something else came along to distract us. Anything to help me forget. There was some relative peace, for a little while. Maybe the eye of the storm. Then at some point, and I couldn't pinpoint exactly when, but water began to burn. It started small, like irritated skin here and there. Then one night, as I began to get into the warm shower, I screamed and jumped out just as the water had touched me. Brick had burst into the bathroom, repeatedly asking me what was wrong with panic in his voice as I screamed on the floor. Finally, when I calmed down long enough, I looked down at my hands and froze. Scorch marks stared back up at me from my skin, red and angry. Burns, was all I said, emptily. Immediately, Brick moved my damp hair away from my bare back which, he said, was practically glowing red. The same day, Buttercup choked and gagged as she had tried to drink from a glass of water. She dropped it, and when the glass shattered against the ground, water splashing water all over her feet, she yelped in pain. After some analysis, and treatment of our second-degree burns, the only word that had stuck to my shell shocked my mind from Professor's explanation was rejection we had begun rejecting water. Water, the most essential need for living things, has become poisonous to us. Even after telling us that we could still try hydrating via a gentle, slow four with physiologic saline solution, i.e. the way we had started doing everything else, as well as gentle, soap-only rinse-offs with washcloths for bathing, professor couldn't explain why this was happening. We couldn't understand it, either. It was as if nothing in our lives was making sense anymore. But at this point, I think all of us realized that this was the beginning of the end. From that day, everything was a rapid, downward spiral, it all happened so quickly. But I suppose that it was just as that saying goes, death waits for no one. The following Tuesday morning, very shortly after waking up, Bubbles didn't respond when Boomer was talking to her. He had been speaking to her from his hospital bed, asked her a question, and she hadn't looked up from the Rubik's Cube, between her hands. Just kept squinting at it in concentration, working on it with her fingers. She didn't look up until he'd gotten up from his bed, walked over to her, and put his hand on her arm. He had startled her, and she jumped, looking up at him with wide shocked eyes. He asked her the question again. She only stared at him as he spoke, her brow furrowing in puzzlement and fear. Then, very slowly, she raised a hand to her left ear. She gave it a light smack with her fingertips. Then, she pointed at it, looking at Boomer with tears in her eyes. Professor speculated that her hearing had gone away sometime when she had slept the night before. As he analyzed her, Boomer stayed glued to her side, outright weeping in her lap. He was utterly beside himself. She only stroked his hair gently as he cried, looking down at him with the hollow look of someone who had nothing left to lose. The rest of us didn't even know what to do or say. So for days, we said nothing. With the sound of Bubble's sweet voice gone, her sunny humming, her infectious, musical laugh, her soft words of encouragement for everyone, the already quiet household had become despondent. With this single development, every minuscule ounce of life that was left had disappeared. And all that remained made the basement laboratory feel like the morgue of a hospital, instead. Not long after that, just days later, Buttercup woke one day and could no longer see. She'd sat up in her bed, blinking, blinking repeatedly. Even after she had begun to cry, and then when her crying turned to weeping, she kept waving her hands in front of her face and blinking, blinking. As if the action would force her vision to come back. Butch tried to console her, to hold her and smooth his hand over the top of her hairless head and calm her, even as her weeps rose and turned to hysterical shrieks. He tried not to cry, he did. He tried hard. But eventually, the tears he tried to hold just spilled over. Even as he tried to hide them from all of us. The scene was so overpowering, so devastating, that I had to stumble out of the ward to the bathroom and retch. The action had become so mundane for me over the week that the muscles in my torso had become sore from the recurring action. Brick had come in after me, came to hold my thinned, stringy hair back from falling into the toilet as black poured from my throat. When I was done, powerless, I began to cry into my hands as I whispered, between racking sobs, what do I do? I don't know what to do. I can't sit here and watch this happen to them. Tell me what to do. Brick held me tightly from behind, saying nothing. I didn't expect him to answer, because even if he could answer me, I didn't think anything he could say would comfort me. As I cried, the tears were hotter than what I thought was normal. When I wiped them away with the back of my hand, I looked down at them. My tears were no longer clear and watery. They were solid black. More days passed. The boys began to reject water, just as we had. Professor prepared their hydration IVs. Never leaving their hospital beds became a necessity for them, too. Pain became all-encompassing. I spent my days lying still, nausea and aching and thirst, constricting every breath I took. The short-term treatments that Professor made for us no longer seemed to have any effect on my sisters, and I. I continued to gradually lose my sanity at the hand of my own psyche, swirling down, down, down. Just as I thought that maybe I couldn't handle this, that maybe I really couldn't go on one more second, it came. It came for me quiet and tranquil one day, on a cold day as average as any of the other days I had lived lately. As I lay awake in my hospital bed, racked with potent agony, listening to the sounds of the morning around me, trying to suppress another wave of nausea from making the black bitterness rise from my stomach, there it was, the exhaustion. This exhaustion was unlike any other exhaustion I had ever known. Instead of being heavy and oppressive, like a crashing and destructive wave of a tsunami, it came slowly, to me like the gentle rise of a tide. Coming over my feet, rising softly up my ankles, calves, and knees. Over my hips it came, then my waist, then my chest filled with an intoxicating, saccharine, warm flood, as comforting as a lullaby. So comforting that I didn't want to fight it, that I wanted to enfold myself in it until the pain stopped and all my sorrows were forgotten. The tips of my fingers warmed, then numbed, then my arms, then my shoulders. Individually, from the neck down, my muscles slackened as they all fell asleep. There was only enough muscle strength in my neck for me to turn my head slightly to my left, where Brick's hospital bed was five feet away from mine. There he slept, his face peaceful and free of the emptiness and anguish I had gotten used to seeing on his features. His chin was dropped against his shoulder, and his face was turned towards me in a way that made me sure that he had been watching me until he had drifted asleep. Seeing him this way, so blissful and beautiful in his slumber, so serene, made it easy to keep from fighting anymore. Part of me wanted to call out to him, to wake him, to tell him what I knew was happening and to ask for one last kiss. To look into his eyes one last time. But to rob him of his peace, to force him to watch me leave would be, I knew, the cruelest and most selfish thing I could ever do. Because I knew the image of me leaving him would never be gone from his mind for as long as he had to live without me. And if I could never again kiss him or hold him, if I could never again tell him how much I loved him, if I could never again make him happy in all the ways I wished that I could, then this, leaving quietly, would be my last act of protection of true love. As I drank in his features one last time, my heart swelled and warmed, swallowing every last bit of him that it could. Warmth, crawled up my neck. I love you, I whispered. The words were so quiet that he didn't even stir. My eyelids began to droop. My awareness began to blur around the edges. I watched the way his chest lifted, then fell, with each breath he took and then released. My heavy gaze lifted to the way his eyelashes rested at the top of his cheeks. Traced every last line of his face. Then, having saved it for the very end, my eyes lifted to the white, shiny scar that slashed across his eyebrow. The scar that, despite all that we had been and what we were no longer, had never quite healed perfectly. The mark that symbolized our bringing together, the mark that sealed the fate that he would always be mine and I would forever be his. With this thought in my mind, finally, I let my drooping eyelids slide shut. The radiating pain in my head, slowly, mercifully, left. All the sounds of the laboratory hospital went away gradually, the last noise I heard fade away was the constant beeping of my heart monitor. My awareness shut off with that sweet warmth, and my limbs began to float. Affected by gravity no longer, I felt my thin, limp hair lift around me, spinning and brushing against my face. The weakness, nausea, and pain left my body as I felt it gently lift. My eyelids no longer heavy, I opened my eyes. I levitated aimlessly in an empty limbo. It felt like I was in a large body of water, but all there was around me was darkness and silence. And stars. Endless, infinite amounts of glowing stars. But instead of the stars being eons, light-years away, they were small and close, they surrounded me. Fighting against the thick, viscous feeling of water pressure around me, I unhurriedly lifted my arm, reaching, and I touched a pinprick of light. Stardust floated down from it, and when I took my hand away, the sparkling, iridescent dust coated my fingertips. When I brought my arm back to my side, more stars swirled around me like dust motes in the sunlight, stirred by my movement. I blinked as one bumped into my cheek, then began to float away through the red curtains of my hair leaving a trail of silver dust in its wake. For a long time, I watched it. At peace. I turned my gaze away from the star's journey. Bringing my knees up, slowly curling into a ball, I accepted where I was and remained there. Just me and the exquisite ocean of stars. A coma, Professor had said. I stared down at her on her hospital bed. Down to the drip in her arm, the IVs and the respirator attached to her face, this moment was nearly identical to when I had brought her here after fainting two months ago, sitting next to her bed and waiting for her to wake up. If it weren't for one big difference. The large, likely chance that she wouldn't wake up this time. The health she'd once possessed on her features had all gone away. Her face, drawn, had become emaciated. Deep purple circles had become a permanent part of her face, along with the way her cheekbones jutted out and her jaw became sharp, the slight roundness to her face that I had loved gone. Her once shiny and glossy red hair was dull and thin. Just like her sister's hair, it had been coming out in clumps. Just like my brothers and I, strand by strand, had begun to notice more hair loss as well. I hadn't told her that, though. I hadn't wanted her to worry. Maybe I'd pull a buttercup and shave my head, too. Butch had already. Just as our bodies had begun to reject the world around us, they had gone down the final route of rejecting themselves. Falling apart, at the seams. So, perhaps, it was better that all three of the girls had fallen into comas. I hated to think what could have happened to them instead, what they would have had to. Suffer instead. Maybe I would have had nightmares about it, if I still had dreams anymore. It has been two days now. I had been sitting up on my bed, talking to her. Not expecting a response, of course. But I would tell her things, tell her jokes, wait for her to smile. Play her videos on my phone even though I knew her eyes wouldn't flutter open to watch them. I would stand over her and watch her face closely, carefully. Looking for the slightest twitch. I'd hold her hand, squeeze it. Wait for her to squeeze mine back the way she always had. Those things never came. I knew it was foolish, even pointless. But I couldn't bring myself to stop holding on to the thin, weak thread of hope that I had left inside of me. The hope that she would wake up and she would be okay again. That time would somehow reverse and I would get one last chance to tell her how much I loved her. That hope, that flimsy thread, was all that was holding me in place, keeping me grounded, keeping me from comprehending that she was likely gone. I would hold on to my delusion. Even if it meant I lost my sanity for good. After all, it wasn't like I was the only one. I observed from a distance as my brothers did the same with Bubbles and Buttercup. Maybe it was why the three of us stopped talking to each other for the most part, why we hid from one another, knowing that the truth would hit us sooner if we had to admit aloud what each of us was doing. How irrational it was. Before I went to sleep the second night, I stopped next to her bedside. I smoothed her limp hair back gently from her face. Pressed my lips to her forehead. Leaning back from her, watching her still face, the quote appeared in my mind and came to my lips, before I could stop it. There's little joy in life for me, and little terror in the grave, I recited, then continued, voice lowering to a whisper. I've lived the parting hour, to see of one I would have died to save. Pausing, then frowning as I continued to stare down at her, thumb caressing her cheek, I said, You once said Charlotte Bronte was one of your favorite poets. Remember that? As I had done all day that day after speaking to her, I waited. Searched her face for the slightest flinch. My thumb kept stroking her cheek. My frown deepened. My eyes began to sting. Come on, Bloss. Wake up. Tell me you remember. I waited again. Her face remained smooth. Her only movement remained the shallow lifting and settling of her ribs, reminding me that she was, for the moment, still there. In some way. Just lost. I hoped that she wasn't scared. My face began to contort with emotion I couldn't seem to control. I leaned forward, kissing her forehead again, firmer this time. As if I could kiss movement back into her body. My lips still pressed against her forehead, I recited another line from a poem that I knew she loved. You are my sun, my moon, and all my stars. Finally, I pulled back, tears streaming hot and black from my eyes. I whispered, anguish flooding my voice, I know you can hear me. Don't be afraid. I'm right here. I was keeping my promise to myself, and to her, that I would be the last to go. And as long as she was still here, I would stay. I would protect her. Keep her safe in whatever way I could. Even if that only meant sitting here and watching her, reciting her favorite poems and reading from her favorite books. Hoping that she could hear. Somehow. Wherever she was. Chapter 20, Redemption, The Scientist I stared down at their emaciated, motionless, comatose forms. All, six of them. After an agonizing week the longest week of my life, where I could do nothing but watch as the boys slowly fell apart at the girls' bedsides, crying and screaming at them to wake up and losing every last bit of the lucidity they had left, they approached me. They couldn't take it anymore, they'd said. Their symptoms had all taken a turn for the worse, just as it had happened to the girls, before them. My treatments, the chemical X, drip, the nutritional drip, the hydration drip, even morphine drips, began to no longer work for them, and their physical pain along with their mental trauma compounded and ultimately became too much for them to manage. So they begged me, pleading with me to put them to sleep. I didn't want to. I very nearly said no. But I looked at the hollow, deadened torment in their eyes, their faces, which were empty shells, and I knew these homeless, powerless boys had nothing left. Even Brick, who had seemed the most determined to stick around after Blossom faded, his resolve and strength had worn down to dust in the end. I had never once seen these boys, the once all-powerful rowdy rough boys, seem so brittle and drained of everything that had once made them themselves. It was as if they had turned to glass, and any moment they would smash to shards. I couldn't refuse their request. I knew that this was perhaps the last bit of kindness that I could ever offer them. So I did it. Because they quite possibly loved my daughters as much as I did, and because they had been possibly the closest thing I would ever get to having sons, I did it. I asked all three of them to lie down on their beds, Brick on his bed next to Blossom's bed, Boomer next to Bubbles, and Butch next to Buttercup, and did just what they had asked of me. I gave them anesthesia, to fall calmly, powerlessly asleep. And I watched their eyelids close, for the last time and they didn't wake up. The mighty wave of their comatose states took over after twelve hours of sleep. So I hooked them up to life support, just as I had to with the girls. I lined up all six beds in a row. Limp body after limp body. Listen to their six respirators expand and collapse. Over these last months, I had watched bit by bit, as my world crumbled to pieces, before my very eyes due to my own hubris. Because of the boy's request, I completed the last of the destruction with my very hands. And then I truly was alone. It had been a few days, since then. I spent much of my time here, in the hospital ward, just staring down at them. Torturing myself with all my regret and guilt. Going through all the ways, that I, in hindsight, could have prevented this all from happening to me, to all of us. I worked through all of the precautions I could have taken, such as monthly, no, weekly health checkups. Constant monitoring. I could have seen it as it started to happen, the destruction. I could have started my research years in advance. I could have developed a solution, just in time. Before it was too late. I knew that now it was too late. But I couldn't keep from locking myself in my office rifling through my files for the thousandth time, searching for anything I could have missed. Going through all of my notebooks and notebooks of notes. Flipping frantically through my books for a new piece of information to magically appear to me, a miracle solution that could surely manifest out of nowhere. Then, habitually, I'd go straight to my experiment lab where I'd started and then stopped that one wretched, impossible project, the invention that wouldn't invent itself, and yet I could make no heads or tails of myself. I would stare at it until my vision became sightless and blurry, then collapse into a heap on the countertop, quaking like the cowardly mouse that I was. I had promised bubbles that I wouldn't give up. Promised. And none of them had known about my attempts at inventing this solution. But it was too late to do anything now, even if I were to complete it. And deep down I knew I had already lost everything. In my current tormented state, I of course got little to zero sleep every night. How could I, in my circumstances? My mind was spiraling from lack of sleep, and yet every time I closed my eyes, all I saw were my girls suffering. Suffering because of me. My agonized mind begged for sleep, and yet my mind made sure that I would never get a regular night of rest, possibly ever again. Finally, out of desperation one night, I opened up my long-abandoned liquor cabinet which had always been well hidden from the girls. I drank, and I drank some more, forcing my body to shut down into unconsciousness. When I awoke several hours later, bleary-eyed, hungover, and utterly debilitated, I wished for death. Not just wished, I craved it. I thought of some old prescription pills I had high up in my medicine cabinet. I wondered if I had enough left that taking the rest of them all at once would kill me. Maybe I didn't have enough. Maybe it would just be enough to destroy my brain and organs, and I would remain a vegetable, an ill-fated coward stuck inside his own broken mind until his body finally gave up. I had no family left. No siblings. God knew where my parents were, if they were still alive. No significant other. No daughters, anymore. Who would miss me? No one. And there was no one and nothing that would fill the gaping emptiness inside of me. These days of darkness bled so seamlessly into each other that I began to lose track of time. I no longer knew what day it was, or what time of the day it was. I spent my nights weeping until I was hysterical, and I spent my days lying awake in my misery. I didn't leave the house, either. I ordered hot food to be delivered and ordered all of my groceries, I barely had any appetite, and I considered starving myself, but then I would peer guiltily into the hospital ward with my girls. I'd think of how their ability to eat was taken from them. Then I would force myself to eat a meal. I would give the delivery people extra tips to come through the back gate to the back door. And if any prying questions were asked by them, the door would be slammed in their faces without a single word from me. As the days passed and it became longer and longer that the girls and boys hadn't been seen in public, the press became more insistent. Ringing the doorbell at odd hours of the day, calling the house. The phone rang constantly. The girls' phones, which I kept charged for, though I didn't know exactly why I did, except for maybe a sense of normalcy, constantly pinged and vibrated with. Text notifications and hotline notifications and phone calls. At some point, I saw the mayor's caller ID show up when the home phone rang. I still didn't answer. I knew better than to look at what people were saying on the internet. I turned my Wi-Fi off, to resist any temptation. More time passed. And during one equally dark day, after I woke up, smelling like bourbon and wandered emptily into my office, I began flipping through my notes for what was probably the thousandth time. And I didn't realize that I wasn't alone until that terrifying voice erupted the dead silence. Gracious, you smell awful. When was the last time you showered? And did you sleep in a brewery? The airy, lackadaisical voice had an echo surrounding it, and it pulsed through the space of the room like a negative spike of electricity. Every hair on my body stood up at once. I spun around, grabbing the nearest object to me, it happened to be a pencil. A pencil that hadn't even been sharpened in days. Despite its uselessness, I wielded the dull thing in front of me anyway. I couldn't afford to be empty-handed in this situation. Because there he was, sitting before me in all his otherworldly, frightening glory, him. Long-limbed, unsettling crimson skin contrasted against his all-black designer clothes of some sort, save for the ginormous, fluffy pink collar that poofed out in all directions, to the height of his cheekbones. Several feet in the air, close to the ceiling, he was sitting on what seemed to be levitating, curling, pink mist, it was translucent but he was sitting on it like it was a solid chair. His legs were crossed at the knee, his arms were folded with his sharp claws, tucked under. Each elbow, and his contemptuous black gaze, was locked directly on me, his nose wrinkled in disgust. Then, with a strange wariness, the villain greeted me. Hello, scientist. I couldn't hide my terror at the sudden appearance of this malevolent villain in my laboratory, it was as if he had materialized out of nowhere. Perhaps he had. W what are you doing here? Get out of my home. I lifted the pencil higher as him levitated closer to me, missed, and all. Stop right there. I'm warning you. I'll, I'll call the police. Even saying that felt rather stupid. As if even the Townsville Police Department would help me now. The pencil I held suddenly tugged out of my clenched fingers, by an invisible force. As I watched in horror, it floated away from me a few feet in the air, then, completely on its own, snapped in half and dropped, to the floor. I jumped, and reaching blindly behind me, I grasped a pen. Taking another backward step away from him, with my shaking hand, I held out the pen threateningly, beads of sweat beginning to gather on my forehead. Don't come any closer. He eyed my pen, seeming to deliberate over whether or not he wanted to snap it in half also but to my surprise, the villain snorted. Oh, would you relax? You look rather pathetic like that. And don't flatter yourself. I didn't come here to kill you. He sniffed, looking almost, affronted. I stared at him, pen still outstretched, staying guarded and silent. Legs uncrossing, him stood on his pink cloud as it moved closer to the ground, then he gracefully touched down to the linoleum floor, his high-heeled shoes, clicking against it. He continued, smoothing his jacket sleeves with sharp red claws, really, now. I have much better things to do with my time than to squash little cockroach humans such as yourself. And much more pride, I'd like to think. His black lips, curved upward smugly, in the corners. Very slowly, warily, I lowered the pen slightly. His towering height and very aura was utterly unnerving. All of the instincts inside of me were screaming to defend myself and escape. As I stared at him, I thought through all of my possible escape routes. There weren't many. The front door was very far away. But in the hospital ward, there was a window, it wasn't a window well, but it was there. It was the only window in the entire basement. Could I climb out of it? Could I even outrun him quickly enough to get there in my hungover state? I squinted at him, asking distrustfully, then, why are you here? He sighed, somewhat irritably. I can tell that you still want to run. However, if it will help convince you that I mean you no harm today, I will be frank with you about why I am here. Abruptly, his smirk faded. Him stared at me, strange, alien-like eyes severe, and hard. It's simple. I've come to tell you that you can't let those super-powered nuisances die. A silent moment passed. Then another. Then another. I didn't understand. I shook my head, not comprehending what this creature had just told me. I was certain I had just imagined him saying that. Maybe, in my crushing grief, I was hallucinating this whole exchange. That seemed much more likely than him actually saying something like that, or him even showing up here at all. Only I didn't dare pinch myself at this moment, just in case it was real. I blinked at him, then finally bit out, what? He sent me an impatient look, sighing once again. Work with me, here. You're not deaf, Utonium. You heard me. Him turned his chin up to me, sharp goatee aimed at me like a gun. I told you to save them. So do it. I didn't even know where to start with an answer, for such an order. There were so many questions flying around in my mind that I didn't know which one to articulate. Eventually, the one that I settled on was, don't you think I've tried? The question came out breathless, pained. Dry, him said as he folded his arms again, not hard enough. Clearly. But I have been. I backed away a step, my leg colliding with the chair behind me. I grabbed the back of it, so that I wouldn't fall. You have no idea what it would take, I told the strange villain, despite my remaining weariness. What lengths I would have to go to. I didn't know why I was humoring this conversation, except that maybe I was curious to see where this would lead. Hopefully it wouldn't lead to my demise. If I had to leave this earth, I had hoped it would not be at the hands of a demon. I know exactly what you have to do, said him evenly, looking at me, through a lidded gaze, in an almost bored manner. You have to finish creating chemical Y. You have to finish what you barely started. The shock burst inside of me like a short circuit. How had he known? Had he been watching me? Had he been watching all of us? Somehow, knowing he knew precisely what I had to do made me even more upset. It added another ten tons of weight on my shoulders. My legs gave out at once, and I slumped down onto the chair. You don't understand, I said. I don't know how I could. Chemical X took years for me to discover, years of trial and error. I can't even understand the composition of this chemical I'm meant to be developing. It's utterly impossible. Far beyond my understanding and capability, and perhaps for any scientist alive. By the time I could even develop a working version of this chemical Y, it would be far too late. I would be old and gray. And if chemical X was flawed, how could I create some sort of flawless upgraded version of it? I couldn't. It's hopeless. My face was buried in my hands. I had thought about this process over and over, and each time I thought about it, it just filled me even further with misery. To myself, so low that I thought him wouldn't be able to hear it, I whispered, I can't do it. Him's reply came bluntly. Well of course you can't, he said with a light, mocking laugh. He went on, yes, there are even things the great Professor Utonium can't figure out by himself. And on top of that, you're already graying and wrinkling like a prune. You humans age like houseflies. A flare of genuine aggravation lit up inside of me, at that. He was wearing on my already thin patience. Him went on, you may be a genius by earth's standards, sure, but you're not limitless. There was a pause, one where I presumed that him was watching me, it felt like he was. Then, quieter, him said, but I am that's why I'm going to do it for you. A moment of long silence echoed. Then, very slowly, I lifted my face from my hands and looked at him. What? A slow, succinct nod. You heard correctly. I'm choosing to save your pathetic reputation and help you. My face had drained, and my throat had gone dry. Was I not hallucinating after all? Was this really happening? For another long moment, I didn't even know what to say. So, being the intelligent and articulate scientist that I am, I replied, oh. The villain rolled his eyes and said, however, if I'm going to do this, here's the deal. No one knows I was here, and they will never know. Him said, breezing past me as I watched. The huge pink fuzzy collar of his extravagant suit jacket stirred whenever he moved. Ever. For as long as you live, you will not tell a living soul. And if you tell anybody, I will slit your throat, with my bare claws. He spun, facing me again, sharp severe eyebrows raised high. Deal? Finally, I mustered the courage, to ask a timid question. Why would you show up here, to help me? He turned, facing mostly away from me again, he was standing in the doorway, looking down the hallway, at what I assumed was the doorway of the hospital ward. Maybe I don't want to see those brats die this way. Maybe I want to mess with them forever. He paused, staring blankly now. And since the boys are technically part of my creation too, I think I should have a hand in saving them. I can't stand to see them go to waste this way. I watched him still, straightening my glasses. The lenses were straining my eyes and making my hangover headache throb worse, but unfortunately, I still needed them to see. I asked the villain another question. But if I enlisted your help, how come I know you won't try to kill them? Him burst out in a dry, hard laugh as he turned to face me again. Do you think I would go to these complicated lengths, to kill them, and while they were at their weakest? He rolled his eyes. Lf, I had truly wanted to kill them, I would have done it already. I would have long ago crushed them like ants. I eyed him distrustfully, unable to be sure if I could trust what he was saying to me. You don't want to kill them? He shook his head once, straight-faced. Never have. He paused, eyebrows lifting, then he shrugged a shoulder delicately, admitting, Okay. Erase everyone in Townsville's memories of them and make them all turn against the girls with murderous inclinations, yes. That was just that one time. Just a bit of fun. But kill them myself? He scoffed. Come now. Where would the fun be in that? Remembering the mind-control incident from over a decade ago, I cringed in discomfort. Still distrustful, I continued. How do I know you wouldn't mess them up in some way? Make it so they'll all belong to you, or something. Him smiled an unsettling, fanged, painted black smile. I am not such a selfish creature, Eutonium. I'm crafty, but not impatient. Why do you assume that I would take one of my true pleasures away from myself and in such an easy way?" His mouth twitched. "Frankly, I'm insulted. "Let me have your word," I told him. I didn't know how trustful his word was, but I still needed it so I could stop feeling like I was going to be fighting for my life at any moment. "You have it, eutonium. "You have my word," said him. He was still smirking. I examined him for a moment. Him watched me back, unflinching. Nodding, I said, thank you. Then I said, but why do you care about what happens to them? Truly. Be honest with me. That's one thing I just can't understand about this, I said, frowning. The boys I understand, because like you said, to an extent they're partly yours. But, the girls. Why would you want to save the girls as well? They don't mean a thing to you why not just come here to save the boys alone? Him paused for what seemed to me like endless seconds. The look of contempt and amusement wiped off of his face. Replacing it was a graveness that made him look ancient. Finally, he said, in a voice so quiet that it took me by surprise, let me put this bluntly, in a way that you can understand. I have lived a long time. Longer than your brain could comprehend. Him gave me a measured look, looking strangely wizened. I existed before this earth did. I existed when this galaxy began to form from featureless bodies of gas and rock. I traveled all the dimensions in existence for eons, without ever speaking, without ever meeting another living being that interested me. And then this world of yours finally came to be. For centuries upon centuries, and then, for centuries after that, and more after that. I made this planet my residence. But still I rarely found other beings that interested me. I had been stunned into odd silence, listening to him. Of all the things I might have expected him to say, this had not been any of it. The villain stared down at the floor, at his own shiny shoes, continuing, Let's just say that I lacked any sort of purpose for a very, very long time. This way of living that I have now, though you and every other human may not like it, Though you may despise it and fear it, I'm finally living as my truest self, to my fullest potential as the being that I am. And in their own way, the girls and boys alike, they remind me of that. They challenge me, in an amusing way, of course. However, playing with them, it gives me something. Their passion when they protect all you humans and creatures, and your ways of life, I am not a creature that can be easily surprised, scientist. I see all. And yet, they always find some way to surprise me. Him fixed his gaze on me again, unsettling black staring through me. I feel as if, those things that challenged me, are being taken from me. Taken from me just after I've discovered them. And that, enrages me. Deeply. And at first, I passively observed what had happened, thinking that would be enough, and that I had no business getting involved in this, but I was wrong. I cannot tolerate it so that was what it was. To him, they were his toys. And now his toys were being taken away. That reason made sense, considering a creature like him couldn't possibly feel something like compassion or sympathy. He was here, for his own gain. Feeling as if I had caught a glimpse of something impossible, a fantastical worldview that I maybe never would have gotten to hear so candidly in my lifetime, especially if I had become a doctor like my mother had wanted. I accepted the things he told me immediately. They felt strangely sacred. I got the distinct feeling that I was possibly the only living soul he had told this to. Respectfully, I changed the subject slightly, feeling that prodding about what I'd been told would be rude and unwelcome. What about Mojo? How does he feel about what is happening to the boys and girls? Him's reply was clipped and bitter. He's gone. This curt reply surprised me. What? Mojo knew about what was happening to the boys and girls. I told him. And through his new knowledge of their chemical X failing, he realized that it was affecting him, too. Him turned, handing me a slip of paper that had inexplicably materialized in his claw out of nowhere. Hesitantly, I took it. After I took it, he said, the chemical X faded in him, too. "He's just a monkey now. He can't help us read it for yourself. He stared at me. It's up to us. Giving him one last, unsure glance, I opened up the folded piece of paper. At the top, it said, from the desk of Mojo Jojo. Quietly, I read the compelling, disturbing letter that Mojo had written. It detailed the ways that his de-transformation had happened, and in the end, begged the reader to either contact me to help him, or for the reader to take his place as Mojo Jojo. Finishing reading it with a heavy sigh and a shake of my head, I handed the letter back to the Red Devil, in front of me. Goodness, I said under my breath. Perhaps I should have guessed this would happen. I was so preoccupied with the kids that I forgot that mojo. I trailed off. I didn't know what else to say. With a brusque nod of agreement, him took the letter back, folded it back up, and it disappeared into thin air again. Strangely, I didn't know either. Not until it was too late. I had my back turned on him for just one moment, and, him stopped suddenly, clearing his throat. Then, he folded his arms. Nevertheless, that's another reason I'm here. To see if we could possibly save that maniac. I considered this, for a few long moments. Getting him's help, his unlimited, powerful help, to save these kids, would be invaluable. But would I risk bringing Mojo back just to have my girls? Could I live with the consequences? Putting off the decision for a little longer, wanting to think about it more rather than make a rash decision, I asked the villain warily, why would you want to help anybody? You're evil, aren't you? He raised a neat eyebrow. Evil is relative. He cocked his head. What does the word evil mean to you? I took a moment to think. I leaned back in the chair I sat on. Evil is the opposite of good, I finally said. I thought that this definition seemed simple enough to be true. I see, him replied, shifting his weight to his other hip, arms still folded. He smirked down at me. Then what does the word good mean to you? I couldn't help but think that this felt like one of his riddles. I thought harder this time. Carefully, I said, to me, good means, pure. Harmless. Purity? Startling me, him burst into a laugh. It was booming, and it hurt my head. You scientist types. So analytical. You always see things in absolutes, in black and white. I've got news for you, Utonium. Things don't work that way. In this universe, or any. Flummoxed at his rebuff, I asked the villain, what do you mean? He continued to laugh, shaking his head, beginning a slow pace around my office. You're all the same. All your laws are written to keep you in place, and for what? They're broken anyway, even occasionally, by your own law enforcement. His amused expression began to fade, contempt taking its place as the tone of his voice sharpened. You think laws and constructs make you good. You think doing everything right while everyone is watching makes you a saint. It doesn't. You humans? Hypocrites. Maybe you would see that if you weren't so busy condemning each other and tearing each other apart like, starved tigers. Look at your histories. Isolating those that are different from you. Enslaving and killing those you deem, not as human as you are. Fights to the death in arenas full of screaming spectators. That, Professor Utonium, is evil. If you ask me, goodness doesn't exist. Not readily, at any rate. Not in this world. My throat had gone dry, watching him pace to and fro and listening to his vehement ranting. Fair enough, I said. He had a point. Several good points, actually. He went on, his gaze scrutinizing me. Maybe you considered Mojo evil, but at his very core, was he really? Think of where he came from. He was born a mere animal. An animal with no ability to form intelligent thought, no ability to have grand ideas, no personality. You inadvertently gave him all of that with the chemical X. He gained a soul. And with that soul, he chose how he wanted to live. Just because he chose a life different from yours, it doesn't mean he was inherently evil. You throw that word around so easily, but what does it really mean to you? When does a person or being cross over from being misunderstood or eccentric or different to evil? Where does the line lie? I was nearly speechless. What was I to say to those provoking arguments? I nodded slowly, relenting. I can't argue with that. You make very good points. Pausing a moment, I continued. I admit that I don't have the knowledge to answer those questions. That being said, according to my personal beliefs and morals, Mojo was indeed evil. And so are you. He looked at me, not smirking this time, but at the same time, having a smirking light in his eyes. Evil is a point of view, Utonium. Maybe to some, you're the evil one. You certainly went to Mojo. I nodded again, accepting the fair blow. Perhaps everyone was, indeed, evil to someone else, to a certain degree. Even if they didn't realize it. I leaned forward in my chair again, then stood up. So, with this whole argument, I'm guessing you mean to tell me that though you aren't particularly good, you aren't so evil that you would refuse to help someone when you might get something out of it as well. Is that correct? The villain before me let a few seconds pass as he looked at me. Then a giant, toothy leer spread across his face. His teeth were such a bright white that they almost hurt to look at. Congratulations, Professor. You're living up to your name. For a moment, the absurdity of the situation hit me all at once as I pictured how we might look standing face-to-face like this, on one end, an aging, disheveled, human scientist, and on the opposing side, an otherworldly, immortal, six-foot-tall humanoid demon dressed in heels and product-complete opposites, and now an unlikely team in the pursuit of science. I took a deep breath, then sighed. All right, him. If we're going to do this, I have to ask you some questions first. I need some answers, and I know you have them. I paused impassively, folding my arms as him crooked an eyebrow. I added, only then will I feel like I can trust you enough to work together. He smiled again. Wide, bearing blinding whites within black, glossy lips, almost lecherous in its enjoyment. I couldn't help but squirm in discomfort at the appearance of it. Him said, then consider me an open book, scientist. Ask me your questions. I'm sure I can guess at what they might be. The meaning of life, maybe? Bigfoot? Or the secret to time travel? Crop circles, perhaps? He leaned forward, whispering indulgently as he added, between you and me, around half of those crop circles are created by me. I consider them a hobby of mine. Certainly passes the time. Ignoring his smug comments, rolling my eyes, I went forward with my first question. So, him, tell me. In that letter, Mojo says that he and someone else were the ones that made all of those white chemical X monsters that the girls and boys were fighting late last year. Do you know who was working with him? Him's smugness abruptly faded at my question, and he blinked at me in surprise. Of course I know who it was. It was I, didn't you know? Him added straightforwardly, it was Mojo and I. Along with that dreadful Morbucks girl. Her millionaire father, was the one that funded the whole project. Could have sworn you had figured that out already. Jolting, I stared at him in shock. So it was all three of them. No wonder the girls couldn't pin it all down on one single villain. No, we didn't know. None of us knew. I stopped, flummoxed, then said, wait a minute. More bucks? Princess More bucks? But why would she work with either of you? A slow side grin. She had always hated those girls. She hated the boys, too. She wanted them all gone. As did Mojo, obviously. It was an indulgent revenge scheme for the both of them. I ruminate over this in awe. I can't believe it. I knew she didn't like the girls, and for a while when they were kids, she was a real nuisance for them, but I didn't think. I trailed off, shaking my head. How did she even get involved with you too? Taking a deep breath, him leaned his elbows back against the countertop behind him and began. Well, when Mojo approached her, asking her to fund his plan to ruin the girls' and boys' statuses and then get rid of all of them for good, she couldn't resist. They had already worked together before and she was the only one still willing to team up with him after his reputation in the villain community had become so dreadful. She also hadn't had the best track record in her villainous career, after all, and it's not like anyone really wanted to work with her, either. She had been out of the business for ages, and such a hiatus is usually unwelcome for a crime partner, but Mojo really had no other options. So the two of them came to me, needing my powers to help create the most horrifying creatures imaginable. Creatures that would be nearly impossible to defeat in one-on-one battle. Hundreds of them. The plan seemed desirable, so I agreed. I hadn't joined in on anything fun in years, and it was good to get back in the game. The creatures were of my design, of course, and I designed the overlapping circle symbol as well, with one circle, to represent each of us. I designed the creatures to be nightmarish in appearance, with unsettling human features at the same time. Their designs were meant to symbolically represent the monstrous sides of humanity. Quite artistic of me, I should say. They were also designed to appeal to each of the girl's weaknesses Bubble's aversion to insects, Buttercup's bloodlust, Blossom's tendency to overanalyze her opponents and rely heavily on her mind. I wasn't anticipating the boy's help during each battle, though. We had been counting on the girls fighting them solo. Mojo schemes did always have flaws. I suppose that's where the plan was flawed. He paused. That, and the cloned Chemical X that Morbucks Girls multi-million dollar supercomputer designed. None of us had any idea that the cloned Chemical would burn out so quickly. We also didn't know the real Chemical X, which her father had bought a sample of from the Townsville Science Museum, was burning out. Not until you discovered it too late. He looked down, pinching his black lips together hard. Not until it was too late for Mojo. That stupid, hopeless bastard. Coming back down from my jolt of surprise at hearing that Mr. Morbucks had bought my Chemical X donation from the museum, I eyed the strange villain across from me. If I didn't know any better, it would seem like him was upset about Mojo returning to his full chimp state. Whether he was sad, or just angry, though, was a mystery to me. I decided to change the subject back to the young villainess. What happened to Princess when the monsters collapsed dead during the big battle? Seeming to recover from his brief moment of upset, him answered, for a few days, she launched a smear campaign against the girls and boys. Paid several media sources heavily to twist the story to make it seem like the girls and boys were washed up, useless superheroes." I nodded slowly. That had explained the ridiculous media outrage. They'd been paid to do it. He continued. It accomplished at least one aspect of the original plan. But when the public backlash didn't last as long as we'd all been hoping for, she just left. Cursed at us as if it was our fault that we'd failed, took all her money, and left. Greedy little bitch. And I thought your girls were unbearable brats. After saying that, his eyes slid in my direction again. No offense, he said, slyly. I only cleared my throat, folding my arms. Him went on, honestly, though. That princess girl is unbelievable. She's pursuing modeling now. Modeling. So much villain potential inside of her, so much potential to become my protégé, and she's squandering it on the fickle fashion industry. I shrugged a shoulder, somehow amused, at his outrage over her choice of career. You never know. She could change her mind, one day. He directed a glare at me, seeming to catch my sarcastic tone, and I immediately sobered up again. You know, I suppose in a way, I should thank you. He made a giant. Full-bodied recoil, like I'd suddenly transformed into a rotten egg. Disgusting. Don't be so absurd. Why on earth, would you thank me for anything? I thought for a moment, and then I just came out with it. Well, without your aid in the creation of those monsters, I wouldn't have known what was ailing these kids until it was really too late. In a strange way, you've already helped. I nodded at him solemnly. So, thank you. Tim had the strangest look on his face. He certainly wasn't used to being thanked by anyone, let alone me. He cleared his throat, looking very uncomfortable. Do me a favor, Eutonium, and keep your thanks to yourself. I already know that you're grateful for my being here, so let's not make this more uncomfortable than it already is. He walked away to the other side of the office again, heading to the door, his high heels popping against the tile floors so if you're done asking me these frivolous questions, let's just get this done with. After I followed him out of the office, I showed him where I kept my lab coats, he shouldered one on, making sure the furry collar of his jacket underneath still showed, but the sleeves were too short on his long arms, and we got quickly to work. I showed him my blueprints for chemical Y, along with all of my equations, and all of my notes. Immediately, him began showing me where parts of my plan were flawed, and which parts had potential. We discussed these back and forth, for an hour, and then my stomach growled. Loudly. I forgot you humans have to consume things to stay alive, him muttered to me ten minutes later. He was a few feet behind me, leaning against the kitchen counter and watching me haphazardly throwing a sandwich together. After another moment or two of silence, he grumbled, would you hurry up and eat that, please? It's not as if you're on a cooking competition reality show. Does there really have to be so many ingredients? Five minutes later, him remained impatient as he watched me uneasily eat the sandwich under his gaze, bite by bite. I chewed as he sighed, shifted in his seat, and tapped his foot against the kitchen floor. When I was finished eating, we immediately got to work on the new blueprints for Chemical Y. Step by crucial step, we figured out how to build upon Chemical X's strengths and eliminate its faults. We decided to keep its radioactive qualities, but gave it more balance so that it wouldn't become unstable and burn out eventually. He figured out how to give it more longevity, explaining to me that we had to strengthen its structure. This way it won't collapse. Ever, him said to me when he was done explaining and writing the intricate equation down in his elegant handwriting. It was algebraic, but seemed to be some ancient form of algebra, I could have sworn that a portion of it was written in Greek. I stared down at it, amazed. How had I never seen that myself? This was perfect. It was going to be perfect. There was one thing, however, the radioactive quality of this chemical would be, though more balanced, stronger. More potent. How much more potent it would be, though, we wouldn't know until the experimental phase. The day after that, we began the development of chemical Y. At first, him petulantly insisted that he just poof it into existence and get the boys and girls to ingest it right away. Aghast, I argued that it would take several stages of experiments to make sure that the chemical was just right, so that no mistakes were made. We couldn't risk botching or poisoning them. I also added that, when the time came, their bodies would have to be fully soaked in the chemical so that it would absorb into their cells via osmosis, since their unconscious selves were in no shape to ingest anything. Grudgingly, the Dylan agreed, and after I gathered the necessary elements and equipment we would need, we got started on the first precarious phase. Watching him use his powers in the lab as if it was nothing was terrifying to behold, fascinating, but terrifying. Mostly, I just looked away as he used them, or looked at him only in short intervals, or else I would get too uneasy, and even a little dizzy. Every time he used them, it felt like the oxygen was physically being sucked out of the room. At my request, he only used them sparingly. After many, many hours of slaving away, a full day in fact, the first tentative development of Chemical Y was completed. Its appearance was much different from how Chemical X looked. Instead of being solid black, chemical white was silver and shimmery. That aspect of it had been him's idea, of course. It was slightly more viscous, almost sticky, and it was opaque. And when it was freshly made, it glowed, its glow had a kind of LED quality to it. It was so bright that I had to wear sunglasses underneath my lab goggles. That day ended, and I went to sleep up in my bedroom. What about you? I had asked him before I began to climb the stairs. He had come upstairs to the living room, to sit calmly on our white couch, legs crossed. It was perhaps the strangest thing I had ever beheld in my own home. He smirked at me. I don't do that thing that you call sleep. I don't need to. He lifted a claw, making a shooting gesture at me. Go on, go ahead. I'll be in and out, and find other things to do. I'll return by morning. The day after, just as he said, him returned. And after I ate some toast and had some coffee, we went straight to work. We started with the first phase of experimentation, reactions, to living necessities, starting with water. Very. Carefully, I added a small drop of water to an even smaller sample of chemical Y. Boom. Unharmed, but startled backward from the violent, explosive reaction, I fell off of the stool I was sitting on. He only stared down at me on the floor for a few moments. Then, lips pressed together as he nodded, he remarked, back to square one. After a bit of digging, we found the compound that had reacted so adversely with H2O. We replaced the problem element with one that was similar, but not as reactive. Thus began the second development of chemical Y. This one passed a few more tests. It passed the water test, the carbon test, and the acid test. However, when we moved on to the temperature tests in my simulation room, it froze solid with relative ease, at barely 2 degrees below freezing. That would certainly not do. So, back to the drawing board we went. Chemical white 3.0 went slightly better, and it handled the first temperature test well, not freezing and keeping its form even down to minus 400 degrees Fahrenheit. We thought we might really have a winner this time, until the next test, when it boiled and then spontaneously burst into flames at temperatures just slightly above 120 degrees Fahrenheit. After some adjustments, then came chemical Y 4.0. It held its own in extremely freezing temperatures, perfectly performed within 3,000 degree heat. Encouraged, we went on to the next phase of experiments. We treated a number of small potted plants with the chemical to see how they would react, or if the chemical would destroy them. We left them overnight. I slept as him helped himself to my movie collection, remarking that he didn't feel like leaving this time. He hadn't watched any human movies in a while, and he needed something to do while I was lying around shutting my body off, in his own words. In the morning, we went back into the experiment lab. All of the plants had disintegrated into ash. Figuring out the solution to this one was more difficult. Why is it so important to you that the chemical can sustain and even nourish carbon-based life? Him asked me suddenly as we were brainstorming in my office. Why does this matter so much? Can't we just leave that facet out? We're so close, scientists. Can't we just forget that part, choose 4.0, and end this drudgery? I shook my head at him, brow furrowed. No, absolutely not, I insisted. This feature is vital. It's what would make giving it to other living creatures possible, I said pointedly. Catching my meaning, him's frustrated expression, turned to solemnness. After a few beats, I admitted, there's also another reason I want this feature. But it's a bit personal. He held up a claw. Got it. Don't tell me. Please. The room was silent for a few minutes as the both of us thought hard in silence. Then, almost hesitantly, him spoke up again. I may have an idea. But it's risky. Risky was good. Risky was better than nothing. I spun to face him, expectant. Let me hear it, I said. He explained to me that if we added a binding agent to the chemical, it might make the chemical able to bond to living things, instead of ravaging and burning through it. I wasn't sure about it, but I was ready to try anything if it might work. We decided to try it with Chemical Y5.0. After some trial and error, we found a compatible bonding agent and went to work with the experiments. All the early phases went without a hitch, every single one. When we finally came upon the plant experiment, we poured a water and chemical Y mixture into the pots, hoping that the bonded chemical Y and water would work together to nourish the plants. We left them overnight, hoping for the best this time, but really expecting it not to work. Imagine our surprise the next morning at what we saw. I woke to a sharp claw jostling my shoulder and an echoing voice even louder than it usually was. Scientist. For crying out loud, get up. Am I going to have to throw searing coffee on you? I was startled awake. Ow, that hurts. Ow. What? I said crankily, still half asleep, leaning away from the villain's uncomfortable grasp and rubbing my shoulder with my hand. I was hoping he hadn't broken the skin. Well, pardon me, said him, agitated even though he was the one that had woken me up in the first place. I just thought I would rouse you for you to see the rainforest that has grown in your laboratory. I stared up at him for a few moments, grogginess falling away as I processed this, and then I leapt from the mattress I'd moved onto the floor of my office, which was where I slept the night before instead of my bedroom all the way on the 2nd floor. I dashed out of the door, and as soon as I stood in the hallway, I saw the green that spilled out of the doorframe of the experiment lab and into the hallway. It was, indeed, like a forest had grown in there. Goodness! I exclaimed, making my way into the doorway. I pushed giant leaves and stems aside, making my way in. Him followed leisurely in my stead, smug. See? I knew it would work, he said. As a giant leaf suddenly fell and flopped onto the top of his head, he reached up with one claw, snipped the stem it was on and watched as it floated down to the ground. You're welcome, by the way, he added. I shook my head and turned back around, only allowing myself a wry grin after my face couldn't be seen. Until the afternoon, we were clearing the giant, overgrown plants out of the lab. Since we had no place else to put them, we left them all in the backyard. After that, we only had one experiment left. The animal phase. Since I could not leave the lab myself, I asked him to go get it for me, a lab rat. When he returned to the house after half an hour, with a white rat in its own pet cage, complete with a water bottle and small play tunnels, I decided not to ask where he'd gotten it to keep our truce partnership intact. We poured a small bowl of chemical wipe for the rat to take a bath in, and with my lab gloves on, I covered the little guy thoroughly in it. We left him overnight, locking the laboratory door, just in case. The next morning, we returned to find it dead in its cage. Oh dear, I murmured. Failure of this experiment, the last and most difficult stage, had been certainly imminent. But I still couldn't help but feel. Disappointed. I took my notebook out, adding on to the pages of notes I already had on Chemical Y. At the very bottom in the section for 5.0, I wrote, works wonderfully with organic life has adverse effects on mammals, lethal. After brainstorming again for a while, looking over the properties of the chemical and running circles around all the work we'd already done, we came upon a realization, there was nothing left for us to change. If we switched out any properties, we would risk completely ridding of the positive properties we had worked hard on establishing for this chemical, things that chemical X did not have. We would risk demolishing all our hard work. I didn't think either of us wanted to start over completely at this point, especially if finding a solution this time wasn't at all guaranteed. And chemical white in its state now, which would become its final form, if it could kill a rat in just a handful of hours, it would certainly kill a chimp too. There was nothing we could do. Mojo was gone. Gone for good. Silence passed between us, Grim. When I took a quick glance at the villain, I saw a flash of grief pass over his face before it smoothed out unemotionally again, like a ripple over a calm body of water. A slow, tense nod. I suppose, him said, his voice uncharacteristically somber, that this is for the best, in the end. He struggled with his own intelligent existence, constantly feeling like nothing he did was ever good enough. He always had. Slowly, reluctantly, him turned his face toward me, though he still kept his glittering dark eyes turned downward. Better he live the rest of his days out as a happy, stupid chimp than to continue to be tortured by his own inadequacies. This time, listening to the tall, inhuman villain talk about his unfortunate ally, I knew and realized that he really was sad. That in their own twisted way, they had been close. Maybe they’d only had each other to call family, toxic as it was. And perhaps seeing him this way should have disturbed me, but if anything, it only challenged everything I had previously known to be true. Much more than anything else that had happened to me in the past week. So for his sake, I said very quietly, I'm sorry for your loss. Him stayed quiet at first. Then, slowly, he shook his head bitterly. You humans, he said, voice dry, always futilely sorry for things you have no control over. That night, him placed the folded, borrowed lab coat on the countertop in the lab. I had told him that he really didn't have to fold it, but he'd done it anyway. He now donned his full black designer clothes exclusively again. Him said to me in a quiet voice You'll have to disconnect them all from life support and submerge them fully into the chemical. Their hearts will likely stop. But once the chemical Y absorbs fully into their bodies, it should revive them, if all of our hard work holds true. I'll leave that last phase up to you. Earlier, he had briefly gone into the hospital ward to stare at all six of the kids with an expression I couldn't really read. I had wondered why, but of course knew better than to ask. He shifted, looking at me again. My role here is done, so I'm going to take my leave. So this was really it. He was leaving for good. I began hesitantly, I just wanted to think. Him cut me off, aghast. I told you not to. I held my hands up defensively and interrupted, okay, okay. Sorry. I won't say it, I said. Just know that, I feel a lot of gratitude towards you. That was the same thing. You only reworded it. I'm still deeply disturbed by your gratitude. He straightened up clearing his throat. If I didn't know any better, I would think that he was flustered. And don't think that this makes us friends of any sort. We are one-time allies, and that is all. From the moment I leave this laboratory, we will act as if none of this happened. Understood? I nodded once, trying very hard not to smile. Understood, I said. Though he didn't want to accept my gratitude, it would always be there it would be inside of me for the rest of my life and maybe even after that i didn't dare say this to him but that day that he had appeared in my office he had saved my life he'd saved all of our lives i think he knew this too it was probably why he refused to acknowledge it out loud maybe because he didn't want to acknowledge the fact that he had done something selfless and good no doubt if news got out that the almighty powerful supervillain him had done something good his reputation would be ruined. I would keep his secret for him. As my thank you, that's what I would do. For now. Maybe I would find some way to tell the girls one day, maybe long after I would already be gone and him, could do nothing, but scream at and threaten my bones. I mean it, scientist, him insisted, narrowing his eyes at me, almost as if he had read my mind. But I was pretty sure, he couldn't do that. Breathe one word of it to anyone, and I'll. Slip my throat, yes, I know. I cut in, grin slipping onto my face this time. I understand. Not a word. I promise. For a moment, the villain stared at me, blinking at the grin on my face. He looked unsure, for a brief second, even slightly uncomfortable. Then it swept away as him nodded, seeming to accept my answer. Good, he said. Then farewell. Taking a deep breath, him summoned his pink fog. It swirled out from behind him, lifting him into the air and drawing him backward into a void. Before, seeing this would have scared me, but I think at that point in time, considering everything else that had happened, I felt like nothing could surprise me anymore. Further and further he sunk into the void, and just before him's neck and shoulders disappeared into the miasma, as he looked at me, his face suddenly burst into one last mischievous smirk and for pity's sake, Utonium, he remarked, go take a shower. The image of him swirled away with that, along with the murky, echoing sound of his mocking, shrieking laughter. The pink clouds, curled in on themselves, draining into the void. And then him was gone. I stared through the space of air, that him had once stood in. I was alone again. And now I had a decision to make. The single biggest decision to make in my entire life. Him had left this final phase up to me. The ultimate action of saving them, of saving all of their lives. Now that I had my solution right in front of me, however, several things occurred to me at once. Several daunting, terrifying things. Immersing these kids in chemical Y would save my daughter's lives, and would save the boys' lives as well. Because I had brought them into this world myself, I could do this for my girls. But what about the boys' lives? Was I really responsible for their lives, also? And there was more to this action than just saving them. There was only so much I could know about this chemical from our numerous experiments. There was still much about it that I didn't know. Those things, those unknown things, was I really willing to take that gamble? This chemical could have any number of effects on these kids. Sure, it could breathe new life into them, I knew. I also knew it could turn them into something else entirely it could transform them. It could turn them into monsters. Involuntarily, I thought of that Chemical X monster army from the previous year. And what of their minds, what of their very souls? What would happen to them? What if they lost first their minds, and then their personalities and souls were lost as well? What if their very essence disappeared the moment the Chemical X was wiped from their systems? What right did I have to do that to them? Saving them would be one thing. Changing them forever was another entirely. I wasn't a god. Was I playing one? Was my hubris yet again blinding me to my faults? Years ago, I had not known the risk of bringing three girls to life. I had not realized the gamble I had taken when, after accidentally creating three superpowered girls, what keeping them and watching them grow would mean. That, the way a parent never should in a good and merciful world, I would witness their death one day. Was I being equally foolish now, fighting to keep them alive in such extreme ways? Inventing a brand new chemical with a villain that would extend their life? And who was I forcing them to stay alive for? Just for me? It was not just selfish, it was uncertain. This was an unbelievably dangerous game I was playing. It could cost my life, I realized. It could cost the lives of civilians in Townsville and beyond if it went wrong. Perhaps even the world. I remembered the speculation about me that spread worldwide after the creation of my girls, that I was a mad scientist. It hadn't occurred to me until this very moment that I truly was mad, and perhaps had always been. I had to be crazy to take these sorts of risks. What I was doing could implode, ruin the world and life as it existed. It could be something that generations of people who lived in this world after me would curse me for, would condemn me for. Perhaps I would go down in history as the maniac that ended the world. Or maybe it would change everything. Maybe this world was much worse off, without my girls living in it. My girls had already changed the world once. Maybe they wouldn't just save this world multiple times more, just as they always had before, maybe even without their powers they would improve this world in countless astounding ways. My blossom, could lead others, with the power of her intelligence alone. My bubbles could feed the hungry, help the lost, with just the warmth of her heart. My buttercup could protect, the feeble with just the strength of her smallest finger. The boys needed to return, too, the boys needed the girls. The girls needed them, too. They all needed each other. Without their counterparts, they would lack balance. They all needed their equals, to survive in this world. Life, existence, it needed them. It needed them all. I would bring them back. I had already sold my soul to a devil to do it. And it was my duty. No matter the cost. Even if, in the end, I was just a mad scientist. It was still risky, though, I knew. Bringing them back, could be like hitting reset on their brains. I knew that they could suffer memory loss, maybe multiple other side effects. They could be completely different people when they awoke, that possibility was most terrifying to me. But that risk, I had to take it. Because if I didn't take that risk, the possibility of them never returning would turn from possibility into mere fact. And that, out of everything, was unfathomable to me. It was simply unacceptable. I could not, would not, live in a world where they didn't exist anymore. If they ceased to exist, so would I. There was still no sure answer of what the outcome of this decision might be. But my mind was made up. I was going through with this. And whatever happened next, I would withstand and confront the consequences, no matter what. In the experiment lab, I set up six metal tubs, side by side. I filled each tub up three-fourths full with the metallic, viscous chemical Y. Then I left for the hospital ward, knowing that the hardest part had come. I would have to do it quickly. For the sake of ease, for less complications, and for the sake of my sanity. I started with Buttercup. Stealing my nerves, I took the respirator off her face, and took her off life support. One minute later, her heart monitor flatlined as her heart stopped. I gathered her limp, frail body in my arms and walked her down the hallway to the experiment lab, stopping at the nearest tub, with my gloved hands, I stripped her hospital gown off, then picked her up again. I gently began to lower her into the chemical Y. I placed the mask of the respirator over her mouth and nose so that the chemical wouldn't enter her lungs. Before her head was submerged, I pressed a soft kiss onto the top of her shaved head. Come back to me soon, I whispered to her. I left back to the hospital ward, only returning with Bubbles' body in my arms after disconnecting her from life support, after hearing her heart stop. I put the mask on her face, kissed the top of her head, then submerged her into the next tub of chemical Y, trying not to notice how cold her body felt. As I left, and then came back, carrying Blossom's cold body this time, I couldn't help the tears that rolled down my cheeks or the way my gloved hands trembled. As my knees buckled after I looked down at her, I tried hard to remember that it was just for now. That they would be right back. They will be back soon. I watched her body sink down into the metallic, shimmery chemical, and then quickly got to work with retrieving each of their heart monitors from the hospital ward. Attaching the connectors with resilient adhesives, I connected each of them to heart monitors. Then came the treacherous waiting. For an hour, the single darkest hour in my entire existence, the laboratory was dead silent. It seemed as if nothing was going to happen. I had given up all hope of anything happening at all. For an endless 60 minutes, my girls were dead. And for those 60 minutes, I was frozen in time. I truly believe that in those 60 minutes, those endless 3,600 seconds, part of me had died. Never was I, by any measure, a religious man. But during those 60 minutes, for the first time, more than anything, I wished and hoped that heaven was a real place. Because more than anyone else I had ever known, my girls deserved to be there. I hoped that they were happy, and were doing all the things that they hadn't been able to do anymore. I hoped that they weren't afraid anymore, and that they couldn't feel any more pain or suffering. I hoped that they were flying around and giggling, just as when they were little girls, without any worries. Because if they could never come back to me, at least I would know that they were okay without me. The quiet, continued. The end of the hour approached. Just as I was beginning to plan out what I thought I never would have to do, how I could bear to plan a funeral, how I would call the mayor and tell him myself that the girls had passed on, that he could take care of telling the rest, including telling the press, the worst of the torture was over with. It happened all at once. Beep. Beep beep the three heart monitors picked up slow quiet heartbeats they were so weak so faint but they were there their hearts had started again i jumped from my chair leaping to turn all three respirators on the respirators expanded and contracted they were breathing they were alive i took a long deep breath released it It was the first genuine breath I had taken that entire horrible hour. Now that they were breathing, I also could breathe again. Now that I knew that it was working, that it would work for the boys too, I quickly left to retrieve the boys' bodies to do the same for them. Disconnected them from life support, heard their hearts stop, one by one. Attached their respirators and heart monitors and dunked them in. And then an hour after they'd been submerged in their chemical Y-tubs. Their hearts also restarted with a slow, timid pulse from each of them. It was small, and yet, ginormous. It was progress. The most important progress of all, the progress that meant my hard work with him hadn't gone to waste. Progress that meant life over death. They were back. That was all that mattered. The next three days were filled with more of the same. Slow heartbeats. Shallow breathing. My observing them in my chair across from their tubs. Because I'd thought of it, I set up my old camcorder on a tripod and aimed it at them. It would record the progress, if there was to be any, that is. I was running on such little sleep, so I couldn't rely on just my memory and observation for all of this. I had a feeling I would need more than just my notes to keep record of this. I kept a small supply of food in the basement with me, I never once left them during the day. I only left them at night, to get a few hours of sleep on my mattress on the floor of my office. I usually only slept from 3 in the morning to 6, if that. And I slept. Lightly. I tossed and turned, mostly, and slept in what felt like 15-minute intervals. The fourth day was still the same. The slow heartbeats remained. The unconsciousness remained. All six of them remained in comatose states. I was beginning to wonder if anything at all would change, if the six of them would spend the rest of their days in comas. And I wondered what kind of life that would mean for me. Hardly any life at all. I imagined more days spent in the laboratory, just as I had done the past few days. Only, it would mean weeks like that. Then months. Years. I went to sleep that night with this thought in my mind. Just as I was between sleep and exhausted wakefulness on that fourth night, around 4 a.m., that's when I heard it. The distant sound of three heart monitors beeps increasing steadfastly. I forgot about sleeping. Immediately, I shot up from my makeshift mattress on the floor, sleeping area, and I ran out of the office. I sprinted down the hallway towards the experiment lab, skidded to a slippery stop on the tile floors, and bounded into the lab. As soon as they were in view, I stared down at the girls' tubs, they were still stable. None of them were conscious. But still their heart monitors increased in speed, double, triple, four times the rate. I read the BPM for each of them, still momentarily shaken, wondering what could be causing this to go so wrong, then it dawned on me. 380 BPM. That had been their average heart rate. Their heart rate before all of this began to happen before they lost their superpowers, before their health began to fall apart. The heart rate of three superhumans. Which meant that three more superhuman heart rates would soon follow. A smile came to my face, slow and careful, at first. Then it grew larger, and larger still, until tears pricked at my eyes, and an involuntary laugh came from inside me, and pure bliss took over me in a way I thought would never happen for me again, lit up my very soul, from the inside out. My veins coursed with sweet relief and excitement, flushing my face, heart pounding. It made me feel more alive than I'd felt in ages. Just as the girls and the boys had, I was coming back to life. I'd done it. We'd done it. All by myself, though the red devil was long gone by now, and all of the kids were still unconscious, I shouted and jumped up and down and laughed in celebration. It was over. It was all over. I was filled with so much joy, in fact, that momentarily I was tempted to open a bottle of champagne, but immediately, I decided not to. My girls were coming back to me. They were all coming back. They needed me again. I couldn't tend to them under the influence of alcohol. So I didn't. After I had come down from my natural celebratory high, I left to go fetch my mattress and blanket. I dragged them into the lab and set them on the floor in front of all six of the tubs. Finally, exhausted again, I lay on the mattress and got under the blanket, facing the tubs. I would need plenty of sleep for tomorrow, I thought. There were lots of calls I would have to make, maybe even have an interview or two to do, over the phone or otherwise. With only the straight truth this time, instead of half-truths. The public deserved to know what happened to them, to know what they went through and now they would. Perhaps I will sleep well tonight for the first time in what felt like decades. And as my eyelids drifted closed, I listened to that blessed beeping as it synchronized with my buoyant heartbeat, lulling me to sleep. Beep. 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 Ba-bump. Ba-bump. Ba-bump.